So I, I need a little participation as we start. I know some of you may be uncomfortable with raising your hands in church, but that's all right, because I need you to, to give me a survey real quick. How many of you have at least seen one game of the World Cup in the past two weeks? All right, good. More, I thought there's going to be like five of you in here, so that's pretty good, right? Because we live in a town where soccer is not something that we talk much about, right? When we think of great sporting events, we think of the Super Bowl, uh, we think of maybe the World Series, or we think of like the National Championship game, because I know we're big college football fans down here. Or some of us it go even smaller than that. We think like the Wintersville Classic is like the greatest sporting event ever. And some of you play in and you talk about it every year after you've played in it, of that great pass Cole Parker made his senior year. And, and you know what? They are great sporting events, but, but there's nothing that I believe truly compares to the World Cup. I mean, it's amazing to see all these nations come together and participate in the sporting event. And you may think, well, the Olympics happen, right? But fans don't get crazy about the Olympics like they do the World Cup. These people sacrifice so much of their time and energy to come to a place to watch their team represent their country on this big stage. It's a beautiful picture to me of nations coming together. And I love seeing the games, and I even make my campers during the week watch the games with me to get hyped up for the USA. And maybe, maybe you're not a soccer fan, so you don't understand how, how ties and losses work in, in soccer. And maybe this week you're wondering why everybody was excited when the USA actually lost to Germany, because it actually allowed us to advance to the next round. And we were very excited for our team and, and the great things that they're doing to represent our country in the World Cup. But you know, when I watch the World Cup, I, I see this picture of these nations just coming together, and man, they're crazy. They're crazy fans, and they come to these games, and they yell and cheer, and they don't stop. Maybe they're gathered in pubs around the world cheering their team on, or you see like them gathered in big cities in front of a big screen TV and just cheering on their team. And I'm reminded of something. I'm reminded of what's going to happen one day. In Revelation chapter 21, when we see the, the new city of Jerusalem, and the Bible paints this picture of nations walking in to this new city. And we're not going to be holding a banner of our country. We're not going to be holding a banner of our favorite players. We're going to be under the banner of Christ. And we're walking and we'll be ushered into the city where the glory of the Lamb shines throughout. There's neither night nor day. And all of our affections and all of our worship will be going towards one object, and that is Jesus Christ. And we will sing to him a new song. And, and when I'm watching the World Cup, I'm having this spiritual moment, right? I'm just sitting there, I'm thinking, man, what amazing day that will be when all the nations gather together under the banner of Christ. But then I'm watching the World Cup, right? And that's not why they're there. They're not under the same banner. They're under the banner of Brazil. They're under the banner of the USA. And, and maybe they're even under the banner of their favorite player. And they're, and they're there for a reason. That is to show their affections, to pour out their emotion, to pour out their lives for their team, for the World Cup, for, for a player, maybe for their own pride. And you know what? When I'm watching the World Cup, I see a great representation of the state of mankind. That all of us, no matter what tribe we're from, what language, what city, we all struggle with idolatry. All of us struggle with giving our affections and our emotions to something other than God. And as we read this story, and it's a very familiar story of idol worship, I don't want us to get bogged down to thinking that idols are are something that that we don't struggle with, that it's it's about temples and shrines and these statues of wood or, or a golden calf, for idolatry is actually at the root of our sin against God. And it's something that we all deal with in this room. 
A.W. Pink gives a great definition of idolatry or what is an idol. He says, an idol is anything which displaces God in my heart. It may be something which is quite harmless in itself, yet if it absorbs me, if it be given the first place in my affections and thoughts, it becomes an idol. So it's not just temples and shrines and golden calf we're talking about anymore. It's anything that's in the place of God in our lives. It's anything that displaces God in our hearts. It's anyone or anything that comes into competition with Christ in our lives. It's anything that you think is absolutely necessary for life and happiness. That's an idol. Anything that you have greater affections for and love for more than Christ. So when we read the story in Exodus chapter 32, what we're seeing is a people who fell. They failed to understand the covenant they made with God. They, they failed to obey his commands. They, they failed to give him the highest praise and honor. But as we read the story, I want you to see something else. I want you to notice that this is a story that paints a beautiful picture of the Christian life, the struggles that we face in the process of sanctification. And in fact, Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 10, 6 through 8. Paul says, now these things became examples for us so that we will not desire evil things as they did. Don't become idolaters as some of them were. As is written, they, the people uh, sat down to eat and drink and got up to play. So Paul writes, he says, look, these things happen as an example for us so that we would not desire evil. So as we read this story today, I want you to see yourself in the midst of this story. I want to serve as an example for you so that you would not desire evil as they did, but you would grow in Christ in the process of sanctification. So, the story begins. The people are at the, the base of the mountain. and They've been there for, for quite some time. Maybe they have a lot of fear because they don't know where they're going next. Maybe they have a lot of anxiety built up in their lives. We know they're a complaining people. We know that they're a stubborn people. There could be that at this moment that, that they long for the promised land and they're not patient enough with God's timing and they're, they're wondering why Moses is still on the mountain. And so in their frustration and their anxiety and their fear, they make this idol. And so the first thing that we can identify with the people is that we see our idol-making hearts in the midst of this story. We see, we notice our idol-making hearts. Notice that, that they make a golden calf, but the story necessarily isn't about just the golden calf. If you were to look in Acts 7, verses 39 through 40, you see Stephen speaking, and Stephen says, Our fathers refused to obey him, but trust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So what was at the core? What was at the, the core of their making this golden calf? It was their hearts. Their hearts longed for Egypt. And although they were brought out of the land of Egypt, their hearts were still longing for Egypt. They were still in bondage to Egypt in their hearts. Their hearts still desired what they had in Egypt. John Calvin says it this way. The human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us is from his mother's womb experts in inventing idols. We're experts at it. We naturally do it because when God created us, he created us as worshipers. And if we're not worshiping God, we're worshiping something in our lives. And what we see here in the hearts of the people is that they still longed for Egypt. 
they still long for the bondage of their sin. And so we want to discuss here, according to this passage, a few things that idolatry does when it takes root in our hearts. The first thing is it creates a disobedience to God's word. It's a disobedience to God's word. We read again that they came to Aaron that says, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So they wanted to make gods. Now, we just talked about a few months ago, God audibly spoke to them his commands. And the first command he spoke to them is, you shall not have any other gods before me. And the second command, he says, you shall not make a graven image and bow down and worship it. And they're doing both of those in this moment. They just heard the audible voice of God tell them what he required of them. And yet they disobeyed God's word. It was within the last 40 days they cried with one voice, we will do everything that the Lord has commanded. How quickly have they forgotten the covenant they made with God? And in times of maybe anxiety and fear in your life, you run to those idols and you quickly forget what God has commanded of you. You see, the word of God is is important to us. It's important to us and it's important to the people of Israel because God gave them the commandments for their protection, but also to reveal to them who God was. So he gave them the commandments for their own protection, for their own good, so they would not fall into sinful habits, into sinful ways. But he also gave them the commandments to show his holy requirements, to show a reflection of who he is. And so when we study God's word and we read God's word, It creates a barrier to protect us from idolatry, but it also gives us the right perspective of God. And when we fail to obey God's word, we lose perspective of God and we get outside that barrier of protection. And that's where the the children of Israel are. They've lost right perspective of God and so they are willing to supplement God with another God, a little g God. They're willing to worship something other than God. And we see that it leads to a multitude of sins. And in fact, when you read in later in Exodus, or Exodus 32, you see in verse 21 that Moses said to Aaron, why did these people who have brought you out of Egypt commit such a great sin upon them? And then in verse 25, he says, when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, you see that term broken loose, you know what that means? It means they got naked, all right? That's, that's really where they've gone. So these people started out with just creating this this golden calf. But because of their disobedience to God's word and God's commands, it has led to a multitude of sins where now they are just showing off their shame for all the people to see. And it gets darker. The story gets darker because not only does idolatry, when it creeps into our heart, creating us a disobedience to God's word, it also creates a distortion of worship. Notice that people came to Aaron and they said, let's, let's make this calf. And, and then the second half of verse four, they said, or Aaron said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamations said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat, to drink and rose up to play. So Moses is on the mountain in the glory cloud, with God, communing with God. He's learning about the tabernacle. He's learning about the proper way to worship God. And while he's learning about worship, the people 
are doing everything against God's command in worship. They're sacrificing to this fake God. They're they're throwing a feast in the name of the Lord for this fake God. They're doing everything wrong with how God prescribed worship to be. And so one point of application for the church is this, that, that when we allow idolatry to sink deep in our hearts, we become a, a church that's led more by our culture than, than the gospel. We too can be like the Israelites as a church and allow other things dictate how we worship in this building. And there's many churches who fall into this trap, who are more worried about consumers and pews than they are about teaching the truth of the gospel. They're more worried about how can we make ourselves look better than preaching the truth of the gospel. And they're led by a bunch of errands who have no conviction whatsoever and only care about their own reputation. And we need to be careful not to fall into that kind of culture. As a church, we should properly worship God in this place. We should be led by his word and not by the culture. But there's another application here. And that is this. They did not do away with God. Notice that when he's throwing this feast, he's doing it in the name of the Lord. I always find that interesting that they don't just do away with God, but what they're doing here is they're saying, God, you're not enough, so we're supplementing you with this golden calf. It's almost as if they're saying the gospel, the gospel's not enough, so we got to add to it. We got to add this calf to it because God, you're just not enough for us in this situation. Your presence isn't enough. All your provision, your faithfulness is not enough for us. We have to worship something other than you, God. And my fear is that many of us work this way. We operate this way in our lives. Maybe you feel like you need God in your life, but you also need something else for happiness. Maybe you feel like God alone is not enough to bring you meaning or purpose in life. And so God's not enough, so you supplement God in your worship with something else. So is there anything in your life that you're trying to worship alongside God? Is is there anything in your life that you're trying to worship alongside God? Are there things that, that you believe give you more meaning than God? Things that you trust in or seek after more than God. You see, what the people were doing here is they're saying, God, you're, you're not enough in our worship. We have, to, we have to bring this golden calf alongside you. They didn't do away with God. And my fear is that many of us live in this kind of lifestyle. We don't mind God being a part of our lives. We just don't want him to completely control our lives. So he's, he's to some degree part of our lives, but he's not enough. We have to add to him in our lives. And so it's not just worshiping him, but it's worshiping him alongside of something else. So let me ask you this. In times of stress or fear, maybe disappointment or boredom, what surface in your life? When, when there's a time of, of fear and anxiety, is God enough for that? A time of boredom when, when teenagers are sitting around the house and there's, there's nothing to do, is, is God enough or or are you going to chase after something else? You see, many times when, when life's not going good, these idols we think we can manage and control, and we bury them deep under the banner of Christianity. When times 
aren't as good, when circumstances turn for the worse, and maybe we're like the Israelites and we, we begin to complain and there's times of anxiety in our lives or times of fear, we run back to these idols as if saying, God, you're not enough for this moment. We have to have something else in our lives. And it's a complete distortion of worship because God alone is worthy of our devotion and our worship. Yet many times we run to, to other things. You see, the calf was a representation of their self-gratification. It was a representation of the things that we run to when God's not enough for us. He was not enough for the people of Israel in this moment. But then it also led to a distrust in God's faithfulness. So idolatry not only creates in us a disobedience to God's word and a distortion of how we worship, but it also creates in us a distrust in God's faithfulness. Again, in verse 1 of chapter 32, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. They get fearful. They're impatient. They're frustrated with their situation. And they say, Aaron, make us a God. We have no clue what's happened to Moses. But Moses was there. He was right on the mountain. The glory cloud was there, showing the presence of God, but, but it wasn't enough for them. They wanted more. Their response was simply a distrust in God's purpose. They grew frustrated with Moses' absence and, and were weary of waiting for the promised land. God was with them in the presence of the cloud, but it just wasn't enough. So did they have any reason to doubt him? No. They've never had reasons to doubt him. Yet we've seen this pattern, right? They've always longed for Egypt and doubted God, although he's remained faithful to them. In this moment, they're struggling with God's timing. They don't want to wait anymore. Do we not do the same thing? Church, are there not times in our lives where we struggle with God's timing? Or instead of focusing on the faithfulness of God and how he remains faithful to us, we get frustrated and all we want is a script. We want God just to lay out an itinerary for the rest of our lives so that we know the next step. We get frustrated with the position we're in right now. And so instead of reminding ourselves of how God has brought us through so much, we begin to complain and whine and want something more. That's where the people of Israel are at right now. They're demanding from God something other than what he's provided for them. And you know what's interesting is, or Aaron, who by the way, remember just 40 days ago, got to see a glimpse of God. Aaron tells them to take off their gold. Now where did they get this gold from? Well, if you go back to Exodus 12, you'd see that God pulled this great like, mastermind trick on the, Israel, or the Egyptians and he like, controlled them for a moment or something weird happened because all the Egyptians just all of a sudden found favor with the Israelites and gave them all their gold and silver. And so they walk, out of, they walk out of Egypt with all the Israelites' gold and silver as a sign of God's faithfulness, as a sign of God's victory. And yet that sign of victory that God had provided them with this gold, they take this gold and they mold it into this calf and worship it because God wasn't enough for them. They had grown tired of God's timing. Psalms 106 gives us a clear picture of this. Psalms 106, starting in verse 19. For they made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. 
Therefore, he said that he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. So when you read this, you see that that they forgot their God. They forgot the great things that he had done for them, the way in which he had provided for them. They forgot all the things that he had done and they exchanged the glory of God for the glory of created things. They exchanged the glory of God and his faithfulness and his provision and his promise for an ox that eats grass. I love how the psalmist puts that because it puts it in such great perspective that they would change the glory of God for an ox that just walks around all day and eats grass. And we see what that leads them to. Verse 7, the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Their lifestyle has become corrupt. It reminds me of Romans 1, verses 21 through 25. The Bible says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So here's a question for you, church. What are you exchanging the glory of God for? What's your fake calf? What are you exchanging the glory of God for because you're not trusting in his faithfulness, because you're not being obedient to his word, because He's not enough for you. You know, sometimes we exchange the glory of God for good things and make them God things. Sometimes God's not enough, so we exchange the glory of God for the glory of our family. We hold tight to that because that's what brings us most value and purpose in life. Sometimes the glory of God's not enough, so we run to our job, our career. Sometimes the glory of God is not enough, so we run to our hobbies. For they bring us peace in times of trouble. When circumstances are going bad, we run to those things because maybe those things will bring us value in life. Sometimes we exchange the glory of God for an addiction that we have. That again, we think we can control and we just bury it deep down inside. But the reality is when times come hard on us and we forget God's faithfulness, we run to those addictions as if they bring us everlasting joy. You know, some of you in this room, you, you exchange the glory of God for, for other people. Maybe you sit in your community group every Sunday and, and life's not going good for you. Maybe your marriage isn't great. Maybe you don't live in the nicest house. Maybe you're struggling and you look across at a couple who, who seems to have everything that you don't have. And you look at them and their marriage is flourishing. They have all the money they need. They live in a nice house and, and you envy that. And you can't get over that. Instead of remembering God's faithfulness and his provision in your life, all you can think of is you don't have what they have. And it's an idol that keeps you from turning to God. And your best days are the days where they seem to fall because it makes you feel better about your own situation. Maybe you idolize that American dream and you don't have it and that's what you exchange the glory of God for. Whatever it is, the reality is there's only one remedy for idol worship. Whether it's good things that you are giving into or it's it's bad addictions that you're giving into, any of it can be idols. There's only one remedy. That's Jesus. The only remedy is for the Christian to treasure Jesus, 
to fix our eyes upon him, to allow our entire being to be occupied with Jesus, to behold his glory, for there you will find your greatest joy. If you want to be obedient to God's word, it's not trying to put a lot of rules and regulations and, and strict requirements on your life that's going to matter. It's seeing the glory of Christ and what he has done for you. If you want to rightly worship God, it's, it's not about going to church more. It's not about trying to find a better church than this one that has maybe better music than we do. It's not about that. That's not going to make your worship any better. What's going to make your worship right is seeing the glory of God, seeing the glory of Christ. You want to you trust God more? You want to trust his faithfulness and his provision in your life? It's not about having that house. It's not about everything going good. That's not going to make it all better. It's just going to create a new idol for you. The only thing that's going to keep your heart remaining faithful on God is to see the glory of Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross. It's treasuring Christ. It's making much of Christ. It's beholding his glory. And as we behold his glory by the spirit, we are transformed into his image. So you can say it this way. The more you behold Christ's glory, the more you become like him. The more you see his glory in your life, the more you become like him. St. Patrick has a, a famous prayer that I want to read to you. And this prayer is, is, is a prayer that is of a heart that craves God, that craves to see Christ's glory in all things, a heart that is pure from idolatry. Listen to this prayer. As I arise today, may the strength of God pilot me, the power of God uphold me, the wisdom of God guide me. May the eye of God look before me, the ear of God hear me, the word of God speak for me. May the hand of God protect me, the way of God lie before me, the shield of God defend me, the host of God save me. May Christ shield me today, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit, Christ when I stand, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every hear, ear that hears me. Amen. That's a heart that treasures Christ. That's a heart that has seen the glory of what Jesus Christ did on the cross and realizes that he's the only one worthy of our worship. Now, in Exodus chapter 32, we see in, in verse 11 that, that Moses begins to intercede on behalf of the people. We're going to skip over this part. We're going to come back to it, but let's, let's jump down to verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides. On the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, Now there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting of victory or the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near to the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing, right? Because they had broken loose. And Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hand. He broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf as they had made. He burned it with fire, ground it into powder, scattered it in the water, and made the people of Israel drink it. 
then he confronts Aaron. You see, we see ourselves in our idol-making hearts in this story, but we also see our great need of repentance in this story. When Moses comes down from the mountain after communing with God, and, and how sweet it must have been for Moses to commune with God, to hear the word of the Lord, to, to be in his presence. And he comes down, and the first thing he gets to see are his people dancing around a calf naked. Right? That's a sight, right? To come down from communing with God, and that's what you see your people doing? And he burns with anger. And the first thing he does is he takes these tablets, which had the Ten Commandments written on both sides of them. These tablets that were engraved with the finger of God. They weren't written down by angels. They weren't written down by Moses. They were written by God himself. No baseball card, no autograph you've ever received is worth as much as these tablets. They had the autograph of God on them. He wrote them. And Moses is coming down with these precious tablets to give to his people. And as he gets down there, he sees them in their sin. He takes them and he throws them on the ground. Like, why did you do that, Moses? You got anger management problems? Like, why would you do that? See, I think Moses is is showing them the, the seriousness and the severity of their sin. He's revealing to them just how great of a sin that they've committed. James 2.10 says this, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. See, the people were accountable to the whole law. They may only broke two commandments during this time, but they were accountable to the whole law as a whole. So Moses, when he comes down the mountain, he sees them sinning. He breaks the tablets as a sign that they have, they have rebelled against the entire law of God. They're held accountable for all of it. Not just one sin, but all of it. And so he breaks these commandments to show them the serious nature of their sin. That when you sin against God, you're held accountable to the God. And once you commit that sin, you're under the curse of the law. And there's no way you can overcome that in your own righteousness. And then we see him destroy the idol, but but jump down to verse 21. After he has shown them just how grave this sin was, he says to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot, for you know the people, they are set on evil. And they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. For this, for this man, Moses, who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. And they gave it to me. I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Now what's sad to see here is Aaron, who is supposed to be a leader, right? He was left in charge of the people. This is the same man who saw a glimpse of God on the, on the mountain, who has seen the glory of God himself who has dined with God and communed with God. And in this moment when the people come to him, it's sad to see that he has no conviction, right? He has no conviction. And more so than that, he seems to have no sense of how terrible this sin is. He has no sign of repentance in his heart. And instead of the right response, which is repenting when we sin, he does the same thing that his first mother and father did in the garden, Adam and Eve. He blames it on other people, right? You remember when, when Adam and Eve sin against God and God approaches Adam about the sin and he says, my wife, my wife made me do it. She's, she's the one who did it, right? And then so God looks to Eve and Eve says, no, it was the serpent. It's the serpent who made me do it. And they're doing the same thing. Aaron is sitting here and he's saying, whoa, whoa, Moses, back off with your, your anger issues here, okay? It wasn't me. You know these people are evil. You know they do evil things. 
Uh, well, it wasn't just the people. You know, I just, I gathered their gold and I just, I just tossed it blindly into the fire and out came this calf. It was magic. How silly is this that, that Moses is blaming the, or excuse me, Aaron is blaming the fire for creating the calf. And many times we do the same thing. Instead of owning up to the sin that we have committed in our only right response before a holy God because we're held accountable to all of it, is to repent. We blame. We minimize sin. We don't think it's very serious. We don't take it serious. And, and we, we blame it on other people, just like Aaron. But Moses demands of us the right response here, and that is repentance. When we fall, fall short of God's law, and we all have, no matter what commandment you have broken, you're held accountable to all of it. And when you, when you fall short of that law, your only right response is to put your hope and trust in God his mercy and his grace, and to repent of those sins that you have committed before a holy and righteous God. It's to have the mindset of David in Psalm 51, where he says, against you, you alone, I have sinned and done evil in your sight. Purify me with hyssop, wash me that I might be whiter than snow. The right response is, is obedience to God by repenting of our sins. And then we see Moses says his anger burns hot. He takes the calf in verse 20. He burns it with the fire. He grounds it to powder. He scatters it in the water and he makes the people of Israel drink it. So maybe you're thinking, all right, Moses definitely has some anger issues here. He did something really silly. He just took gold and he ground it to powder as small as he can make it. He puts it in their water supply and he forces them to drink it. That sounds pretty mean. That sounds like a very, a very disturbing like prank on someone. This can't be good for their digestive tract. I've never eaten gold before, but I'm sure it's not good for me. And in fact, most people would say it actually probably killed them. Some of them probably died from this. But I think Moses is, is giving them the right response here. I think he's teaching them something. And that is, if you don't destroy your idols, they'll consume you. The only right response to idolatry is to destroy them, to make them Nothing. And he takes these idols and he grinds them up so that they would be made near nothing to show them that their idols, their gods cannot help them, nor can they save them. They could do nothing. Moses just destroyed them. He grounded them up. And this was also to remind them that as they would digest this gold and it would come out as filth, it would remind them that idols are nothing but filth compared to a holy God. This would remind them that idols are nothing but filth compared to a holy God. Which reminds me of what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3 when he says, There is nothing worth comparing to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I consider it all rubbish. I consider it all filth. It's, it's not worth comparing to God. And your idols, no matter how precious they may seem to you right now, are not worth comparing to God and the glory of Christ. And so you too should do as Moses does. Make your idols nothing. Make them filth before a holy God because that's what they are. That's what they are. And then we see the judgment comes. Moses in verse 26 stood at the, the gates of the camp and he said to them, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And the sons of Levi gathered around him and, and they took up sword and they went and slayed 3,000 men that day. This punishment was to wake them up. To wake them up to the serious nature of their sin. And this morning I hope 
that this story would wake you up to the seriousness of your sin, to the severity of your sin. Because the punishment that you will endure if you walk in sin for the rest of your life is much worse than this. There is everlasting punishment. It's everlasting misery. That's what your idols will bring if you cling to them as your hope and your promise in life. No matter what it is in life, if you cling to those idols, it will bring about destruction. And let me just say this to parents especially. We live in a culture that idolizes people, that idolizes things. Maybe they look up to a certain athlete or they look up to a certain movie star. And I know, parents, I know you struggle because there's a lot of bad idols for your, people to, your, your children to gravitate towards. There's a lot of bad role models out there. But be careful of this. Don't try to exchange your children's bad idols for better ones. Be careful of that. Don't try to exchange just the bad ones in hopes that they would pick someone else that's better to idolize. Make sure they understand that there's nothing worth comparing to Jesus Christ and that he alone should be what they model their lives after. Role models are great, but they are not, they're not Jesus. And they're not to be what we strive for each day. We don't exchange our bad idols for better idols. We, we destroy them so that Jesus would reign in our lives. And we'll close here. The last thing we see in this story is we see our need for Christ, our substitute and mediator. If we were to go back, we see Moses as he goes to the Lord, verse 11, he implores to the Lord his God and he says, Oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did you bring them out and to kill them on the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from the disaster against your people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants, whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. All this land that I promised I would give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. You see, Moses goes up on the mountain and God says, or Moses is on the mountain the first time and God says, look, my anger is burning hot against them. I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to make a great nation out of you, Moses. Now, did God really have any intent of destroying his people? I don't think so. I think it's testing Moses in this moment. And Moses passed with flying colors. Moses pleads, he intercedes on behalf of the people. And there's a great, there's a great model here for prayer, and we don't have time to go into it, but, but essentially what Moses does here is he appeals to his grace, he appeals to his glory, and he appeals to his faithfulness. He says, you have, with a mighty hand of great power, brought us out of the land of Egypt. It's because of your grace that you brought us out. He says, don't, you didn't bring us out here to kill us. You brought us out here to, for the glory of your name. So don't, don't allow the Egyptians to take your glory by killing us, God. And then he says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Remember your faithfulness, your promises that you have made to us. Ultimately, what Moses is doing here is foreshadowing Christ, our mediator, who stands in our place, who is our advocate, who intervenes on our behalf to turn away the wrath of God that we deserve. And then we see at the end of Exodus 32, the next day Moses goes in verse 30, he goes up to the mountain again because he tells people, you have sinned a great sin. I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can atone for your sin. And so here he goes. He's trying to make amends for sin. He understands forgiveness was necessary. Forgiveness of sin is necessary. And so he goes up on the mountain and he says, God, If you will forgive them, great. But if not, take me out of your book of life. I'll sacrifice myself. This is very interesting because normally to make atonement for sin, the priest would take before God a blameless sacrifice, a lamb, a representative to be slain. 
But Moses didn't do that. Instead of taking a representative, he goes and pleads for his people and offers his own life for his people. But God says, it's not for you to do that, Moses. Moses wasn't the one to do that. But you know what? It does point to one who would offer his life for us. The only blameless and spotless one who could offer his life for us. And that's Christ, our substitute. This is a clear picture of our need for a savior. Moses couldn't be their savior because he was sinful himself. But Jesus is our substitute who goes to the cross to bear the punishment, the wrath of God for our idol-making hearts. For when we deserve his wrath because of the sin that we committed, remember, we're accountable to the whole law. We deserve that wrath. Christ substitute his life, his perfect obedient life, his perfect righteousness. He substitutes himself on the cross for us. He dies the death that we should have died. He takes the punishment that we rightfully deserve. And he alone is why we have life. John ten eleven says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Christ is our good shepherd who willingly sacrifices his life for us. Who just like the Israelites here, struggle with idol worship every single day. We'll end with this quote from A.W. Pink. And this is kind of his summary of what has happened here. He says, nevertheless, they were God's people by his redemption. They were his purchased property, unworthy, unthankful, unholy, but yet the Lord's redeemed. Blessed, glorious, heart-melting fact. Oh, may the realization of it create within us a greater hatred of sin and a deeper appreciation for the precious blood of the Lamb. Today, I hope you realize how serious sin is and how we all struggle with this idol-making heart inside of us. But my prayer for you is to see this, that you would have a greater hatred of sin and a deeper appreciation for Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we enter in this time of response to you, our only right response before a holy and righteous God is repentance of our sins and worshiping you. Because you alone are worthy of our worship. You alone are worthy of our lives. Lord, the idols that we, we give into, Lord, the, the good and the bad things of this world that we give our affections and our hearts for, At best, they can bring us temporary happiness, but they can never bring us everlasting joy because we weren't created to worship those things. We were created to worship you. And we will never find ultimate joy and satisfaction in the things of this world. We will only find joy, happiness, forever satisfaction in you, Jesus Christ. We will only find forgiveness of sins in you, Jesus Christ. We will only find the remedy for the seriousness of our sin and our idol-making hearts in you, Jesus Christ, and what you have done for us on the cross. So may we remember that today, and as we sing, may we remember your faithfulness to us, your promises, your provisions, the way in which you have guided us through dark times in our lives, through sinful times in our lives. And, And in this moment, may we see that you are enough, God. You alone are to be worshiped with our lives. We don't need to cling to any other idols for comfort, for satisfaction, for affections, but you alone are enough. So during this time, if if you're in here and and maybe today you've realized the seriousness of your sin, you've realized the good news of Jesus Christ, we'll have 
pastors and, and staff members in the back, counselors who would love to pray with you, who would love to talk to you about Jesus Christ. There is nothing we consider more valuable or worth than our time than talking to you about Jesus Christ. We, we would love to teach you more about, about how you can be saved from your sins today. But if you're in this room and maybe you've realized today that you've been struggling with some idols in your own life, that you're battling that thought that God's not enough, that you need something more than him, During this time, I pray that you just pour your heart out for him, that you would behold his glory, that you would sing to him for he is worthy of your worship and may it encourage you to have a deep hatred for sin in your life and a greater appreciation for what Christ has done for you. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you move in power during this time. It's in your name we pray, amen. Let's stand together and respond to the Lord.